0: I do think that at the past 60 years, we have created this environment where we have pretended that medicine can cure everything, including old age, death and dying. And what we find is that those technologies then are not prolonging human life. They're really just prolonging human death.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I tackle the issue of death, or more specifically, how we die in America, how we talk about it, and how we avoid talking about it, often to the detriment of people who are nearing the ends of their lives. Now I realize that death can be a grim topic, but I've always felt like it was an important thing to think about. My first book, Vagabonding, was about travel and the concept of time, and how we use our time in life. And this philosophy was grounded in part by the medieval Christian concept of memento mori, which is Latin for remember death, or remember that you will die. Now, The idea here is not to be arbitrarily morbid, but to use the inevitability of your own death to make the most of your own life and the dreams you have for it in the years that you have allotted on earth. In many ways, the concept of memento mori animated the travels of my younger years and led to the life I live now. But as I've grown older, the notion of mortality has become more than a philosophical abstraction. Take this interview, for instance, recorded on my iPhone before I ever had a podcast. I heard a story that, like, when you were 14 or 16 or something, your parents were throwing a party and you went to the bathroom and the mayor of Wichita was passed out. No, he he was on his feet, but he pissed all over the floor. Okay. (laughs) So let's. How about. Guess who got to clean it up? That's me talking to one of my favorite people, my Aunt Linda, back in the spring of 2014. Now, part of the reason I sat down with my father's older sister and asked her to share her memories was that it was a way of holding on to a part of her at a time when I knew she didn't have much longer to live. She was 82 at the time and died about 18 months later. I've also been collecting and recording stories from my parents, and if you haven't done that, I highly recommend it. It's amazing what things you can learn about your parents by asking them the simplest of questions about their lives and their ways of seeing the world. And in the process of talking about and reminiscing over these moments from my parents' earlier lives, I began to think about the inevitable process of aging and how their health will decline in ways that I don't like to think about. In doing this, I realized that late-life quality of life, that is, how our loved ones live their final years and months, is something that rarely gets talked about in America, or at least it's something that we're reluctant to discuss at a person-to-person level. And the more I looked into end-of-life healthcare in America, the more I realized that it doesn't necessarily take into account the best interests of the people who are dying or their families and loved ones. So, to learn more about how we die in America and how we talk about dying in America, I sat down to talk with journalist and scholar Anne Newman, whose book The Good Death is an empathetic, in-depth exploration of the concepts, challenges, and policies that, for better or worse, shape the ways Americans live as they near the end of their lives. Anne and I sat down to talk not far from New York University, where she is a visiting scholar at the Center for Religion and Media, and I started the conversation by sharing with her a passage from Edward Abbey's classic book, Desert Solitaire. He was sort of a, this curmudgeonly beat-era naturalist who lived in, in Utah and wrote a, a memoir of his, his experience there. And even though I was reading this book in my 20s and I was not in a position to think about aging parents because my parents weren't that old yet, I wrote down this quote and it said, he's talking about this cowboy that he's working with in Utah called Roy, and how Roy is, quote, afraid of having a heart attack falling off his horse, dying there in the sand under the sun among the flies and the weeds and indifferent cattle. I'm not inferring this because he told me so. Yet the manner of death he fears does not sound bad to me. To me, it sounds like a decent, clean way of taking off. Surely better than the slow rot in a hospital oxygen tent with rubber tubes stuck up your nose prick asshole and blood transfusion intravenous feeding Bed sores and bedpans and bad-tempered nurses' aides, the whole nasty routine to which most dying men are condemned. And that was, written in, was published in 1968. Mm-hmm. So um, it feels as if this is a topic that has been on people's minds for a long time, yet it hasn't made a whole lot of progress. And in fact, in your book, you point out how the 70s you know, mm-hmm. after this book was written it actually became even more pronounced this idea mm-hmm. of the the sterilization um, and the you know the hyper medicalization of the death experience so mm-hmm. I guess tell us how you got into this topic what how it um, how you became convicted to write about it
0: yeah I think anyone who's writing about death and dying rightly so is coming into it out of personal experience and for me it was. Uh, caring for my father until he died in 2005. He had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 50 um, and had weathered his ups and downs, was an incredibly private man uh, with two daughters. And um, he had the idea that without burdening anyone and just wanting to protect his privacy, he was gonna go crawl into bed in his, you know, in his bedroom and that would be that. And, of course, we all know that's not how it takes place. So he was very adamant about leaving the hospital, not being there for a long period of time. Knew he wanted to die in his own home. Um, And I ended up taking a leave of absence from my job when things started to go south. uh, And it was horror. It was... Really complicated and difficult, and the kind of physical intimacy with family that we're most often not accustomed to, particularly parents. I think I'd be fine with my sister wiping my ass, but me and my dad—that was a little rough. So that kind of visceral, the feces, the dirty bed sheets, the vomit, and sleepless nights. And um, if you, um, if you have traveled rough, if you have Um, parented, maybe, you are quite accustomed to that kind of physical reminder of what the body does. I wasn't, and it was a lesson. Um, His death did not go the way we had hoped, and, um, and after he died, for a long time it rattled around with me. I was kind of pissed off that why didn't anyone prepare me? Why did my culture not prepare me for that kind of grief, for that kind of death and dying experience? I had no idea whether that was how it normally went or not. Um, and so I tried to run away from it and did all sorts of things. And then I just got really angry and said, okay, I'm gonna figure this out. And that's the book. It was, I'm gonna I'm going to go roll around in this like a dog until I can figure out why it is the way it is. Um, And I think that's what nonfiction ends up being, right? You have this question and you have no idea why it um, is hounding you. Um, And so finally you can't shake it. You just have to go figure it out. So I started volunteering for hospice and that's the rest of the story.
1: You mentioned a couple of things. One is parents deal with feces, vomit, things. Travelers, and I've written about this, deal with illness and, and, and traveler's diary and stuff like that, mm-hmm. a ton of stuff and social guidance is available for those two things. You know, right. If you're a traveler and you want mm-hmm. to deal with the nasty part of travel, myself and other travel writers can help you with that. If you mm-hmm. are a new parent and you want to deal with uh, the poop tidal wave, mm-hmm. that, in, that entails, there are a lot of books, but it feels like there's less of a cultural conversation about the dirty business of death. You know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's what most attracted to me. Um, I wanted to know why we weren't discussing this. I wanted to know why there was so much shame around the decline of the human body, just, just aging in general. As a, as a woman who can see 50 very near, um, I'm angered but very, very conscious of the fact that aging bodies in this society um, start to decline in value. Um, And it it happens earlier and earlier, right? Um, And so uh, I wanted to know why we place particular values on um, uh, ideas of health or even healthy things. We can go into that whole capitalism health conversation, Barbara Ehrenreich's um, current book, Another Time. Um, But I wanted to know, and I I do think that um, I do think that at the past 60 years, we have created this environment where we have pretended that medicine can cure everything, including old age, death and dying. And we have allowed that medical industry to run away with its own obsessions. And those obsessions are um, uh, every new possible medical technology. And what we find is that those technologies then are not prolonging human life. They're really just prolonging human death. They're making the dying process much, much longer. And so these days, I'm spending my time looking at what problems that's causing. So think about caregivers, spouses, for instance, who are left to care for Alzheimer's um, spouse for decades. Parkinson's can last as long as 25 years. Um, so what happens now that we have um, prolonged to this dying period, um, and what does that do to the most, the most trivial of things, national resources, personal resources, um, but also um, human relationships? Uh, and, and I don't think we have an answer. I don't think we've done anything about it all these years, because pretending we're not going to die which is an innate human, um, characteristic. We needed it for survival. We needed to be able to do all sorts of things and just put that in the back of our minds. It doesn't work anymore.
1: Yeah. I I think Freud or someone talked about how people just spend so much of their lives sort of convinced they're not going to die. Uh, and again, it's something that we don't have a vocabulary for, you know. I think that's what was striking when I realized that you'd written an entire book about this. I mean, my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease, and I remember the awkwardness of of confronting her. You know, mm-hmm. this person that I had known for maybe twelve or fifteen years before she started to decline, mm-hmm. and over time, her husband, my grandfather, was like the only person who really seemed comfortable with her. Um, that there was an extent to which us younger kids sort of treated her like furniture to an extent. You know, we, we wanted to love her and care for her and be for her around mm-hmm. her, but it was just so awkward and we were sort of struck dumb by this situation. And that's one example. I mean, there, again, that, that, um, and another thing you touch on in the book is that we see news is full of deaths. We see deaths on movies, you know, um, even there's this memento mori sense of death that I write about quite a bit, you mm-hmm. know, using, using death to, to animate the idea that you should live now. But what all of that overlooks is the actual difficult, heartbreaking, um, oftentimes, um, you know, nerve-wracking, smelly, unglamorous part of the Mm -hmm. death process. Mm -hmm. And it's something that has been prolonged. It's been medically prolonged. I think in your book, you say that like half of all resources medically of the over a trillion dollars of medical resources, half of it is spent on 5% of patients, and that is end-of-life patients.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, that wouldn't be a bad thing, right? We want to help patients who are dying as much as we can. We want to prevent prevent pain and suffering. However, we're not doing that. We're spending a boatload of money, and we're really not making death and dying easier for these patients. We've also made it rude, right? We're talking about 50, 60 years. We've made it rude to discuss death and dying with people. So I used to volunteer at Beth Israel. Um, The the hospice wing was on the same floor as um, um, the nursery. And so people coming up in the elevator would be alarmed by seeing these two on the same floor, and yet, you know, it's this poetic cycle cycle of life, but anything to do with death, it's, um, it's become a rude thing to discuss. And then we end up letting elders just kind of shuffle off into it without any preparation or support or resources. Um, I was on the phone this morning with a woman who is a researcher in Florida, and she writes about elder care, and she has an 84-year-old mother, and... They're not talking about elder care with her 84-year-old mother. This is someone who does it for a living and doesn't want to offend her mother. So they're not using the word hospice. They're not talking about end-of-life planning. So this is pervasive. It's a real problem.
1: So it's like old people are going in completely deaf, dumb, and blind to what they're going to experience next. Um, And I'm just wondering if it's I don't know if it's if this would be an overstatement, but there's an extent to which we sort of torture our old people. Like we don't really tell them what's going to happen. <laughs> and then we stick tubes in places that have they're not used to having tubes. Um, my, my Aunt Linda passed away a couple of years ago, and I know she didn't want to be intu- intubated, mm-hmm. but they intubated her anyway. And one of the last pictures, probably the last picture I've seen of her is that when she she was in, intubated in her hospital bed. And they're just proud people. I think when you're young, you see old people and you just assume that they'd, they've they been old forever, mm-hmm. right? But then you see people who were just awesome, strong, dynamic, um, mm-hmm. world-changing people, and then they're dying in a way that seems not just foreign to you, but foreign to themselves, you know, that they're not ready for this.
0: Right. Um, I used to have this 80-year-old friend, Jean. She and I went through hospice training together, and I would catch her flirting with men half her age all the time. And I'd be like, Gene, did you just did you just flirt with that cashier? He's like... Thirty, She's like, oh, I forget how old I am. And while I think some of that was real, some of it was also a a, a contrived habit. She wanted to not remember how old she was and she worked at it. And that, I mean, we do that with ourselves all times, all the time for all sorts of things. Um, But yes, as a culture, we have done that. Um, I think because it sells, youth cells, sexy young cells, um, looking good and being healthy is a huge market. Um, But also we've convinced ourselves that um, it's bad luck or um, not polite uh, or um, rude to discuss these things.
1: So let's get concrete a little bit because obviously you went through a process um, dealing with your own father's uh, death and decline. Uh, You used the, the phrase evicted from his body uh, you mm-hmm. talk about the idea that we're these able-bodied people our whole lives and then suddenly our bodies are not serving us in the way that they used to. So maybe take us through the process of seeing, uh, you know, in oftentimes dispiriting ways, seeing your father in the late days of his life and then being a hospice volunteer and what you learn along the way.
0: Oh, God. I don't even know where to start, Rolf, honestly. Um, my entire conception of human life changed and I don't think I'm being overly dramatic. Um, when. Dad died, he was 61, 60, 61, and I was 36. And I had thought that I would live forever. Could sit and talk about, oh, life's not going to last forever, but I still thought it was going to. But it it was very devastating. Again, I wasn't prepared for it in any way. Um, And we don't really do good grief counseling. You know, people kind of say, if you need anything, um, but who's gonna say, yeah, I need something. We don't know how to help people who are grieving unless it's that sort of AA model of sit around in a circle of chairs. Um, So yeah, I ran away for a while and running away is always good. Um,
1: So did you, you literally ran away, you traveled the world? I did. And was that before you were a hospice volunteer? Yeah. Okay, Interesting. interesting, interesting. There's a quote from my book, that that sort of from your book that sort of reinforces some of what we're talking about. It says the way we talk about dying and the way we die are two very different things. Death fills our books and our movies. What's different today is that our experience of death is a simulacrum, a myth, a romance where our loved one gives us a last meaningful look, then slips into a long sleep. By the romance of death, I mean that you find in the genre of movie or novel that depicts death as noble, beautiful or peaceful.
0: Yeah, there's this wonderful study that compares uh, the effectiveness of CPR on hospital TV shows compared to real life, and it's it's insane. So on TV shows, it's about 75% of CPR um, experiences revive the person and they wake up. And in real life, it's something horrifying like 20 or, you know, maybe even lower. And most often times, the person who has had CPR Especially if they're old, will have broken ribs and punctured lungs and all sorts of terrible things, and they're still dead. So, so this idea that we can, that medicine can do anything from cure cancer to save someone who's had a heart attack or bring ninety-year-old grandma back from a stroke, um, is a myth. Um, I think I note the the schlocky, wonderful movie, The Notebook, in. Uh, in the book because it's this lovely thing where James Garner crawls in, wife, uh, crawls in bed with his wife and they kind of hold hands and drift off into sleep together. Um, the old man's friend, pneumonia, is really the way that we all want to go. Um, your lungs fill up with fluid, you're kept comfortable with morphine and you fall asleep. To die in your sleep would be wonderful. They're very rare instances of that. Um, When I teach about death and dying, or even lecture about it, I like to open with this uh, story from Joanne Lynn, or I guess an exercise by Joanne Lynn. She's uh, she's worked on healthcare administration for uh, a number of decades. And she walks into a room usually and she says, so, okay, how many of you here would like to die of cancer? And no one raises their hand. And then she says, okay, heart attack, um uh, angina um and you know nobody's raising their hand to this and then she says oh okay i guess you all want to die a long slow painful death of increasing age and disability and you can see the eyes in everyone in the room and i use that and i can see the eyes of everyone in the room go crazy like oh that sounds terrible and yet that's what we're all gunning for because we don't know better
1: And it seems like a big percentage of deaths are that way, that they aren't two old lovers holding each other and and gently drifting into death. Yeah, no. Um, And I think another example you use in your book is is would you rather, would you want to live two more months if it was fairly normal Mm -hmm. or six more months, but it involved Mm -hmm. agony? And it seems almost like a lot of medical choices these days are the latter option, Uh, the idea that your life is
0: prolonged, but in a pretty horrible way. For a lot of people when we make the decision that quantity is the pent ultimate goal, we're making the wrong decision. Um, because there are things worse than death. From what I've seen, excruciating pain is absolutely worse than death, worse than death. Um, Oh, it's heartbreaking to see families where there's one family member who can't talk about what's taking place. And so a patient who just wants to do whatever they can for their family, for their loved ones, will go through horrifying rounds of treatments that really are just torturous. And, um, and we love each other. Um, as, as, um, as family members, we're willing to put ourselves through pain. But frank conversations could save that in many cases. And and this is a realistic conversation. Many patients do have this decision-making. It's not just a theoretical exercise. Um, Studies show that when people go into hospice, they can live up to three months longer. They're no longer being tortured or pumped full of chemotherapy. And so they can go home and be around family and be in familiar surroundings, and they will live longer.
1: I do want to eventually get to like the hospital level, the policy level, oh. even, even what happens in, in hospice, uh, which a lot of my listeners might not know. And I'm, I'm sure that I, there's a lot I don't know about hospice, but I want to continue through this process. So, um, so your father didn't die gently um, with the music swelling uh, no. and then, then you hit the road. So what struck you as being completely unexpected and different about your father's death?
0: his pain, his absorption, -absorption. self-absorption. When your body's shutting down, it's really hard to do much of anything else, think much of anything else when your systems are no longer working in unison. Um, And the ways in which family history is not resolved as one dies, I'm gonna ask you about your parents shortly. (laughs) So all of that can pile up and, and be really complicated. And I don't care how much you hope for resolution, that sort of um, last words on the deathbed thing is really not the most common. Um, and and I, that's universal, right? Families fall apart over death and dying. They fall apart over the caretaking, then they fall apart over the objects and possessions. Um, and we haven't really worked out how to do that well as a species, uh, at least not in in, quote unquote Western culture. Um, So so I realized that um, I didn't know what was going on. I ran away, I came back, and I started volunteering for hospice. And I think first and foremost I hadn't understood that I hadn't understood finality. Um, Absence is very profound and it's something that we don't we don't know how to discuss as well. Um, and so I started trying to find absence. <laughs>
1: well, it feels like it's something that you had an interesting story about when you were in Kenya. You were sort of bonding with a guy who had also lost a parent, yeah. and then you realized at a certain point, after a very emotional conversation, that he'd lost his parents, his parent ten years earlier. Right. That, that absence doesn't yeah. go away sometimes. No,
0: I thought I was going to shake it. Right. Oh, I'll go see the world. I'll like, I'll figure this thing out by wandering around and being by myself and doing that. Mental, emotional work. Oh no, this guy. Um, we're sitting on some lovely terrace and having this conversation, and you know we're both in tears. Um, and then when he drops the fact that his father had been dead for ten years, I was like, Oh, I am so fucked. I'm like what am, what am I going to do? This is complicated grief. This is not something that you drive you drag around with you. This makes you forget where you are. This makes you make bad decisions. it makes you marry the wrong people. It, you know complicated grief can do terrible things. so so yeah that was a real lesson.
1: Well before we get to the hospice thing, tell me how travel worked. Did it Ooh. As a, as a process of mourning, because travel is a big thing for me, but I've never, right? I haven't lost my parents, you know? And, I, and in fact, I've, I'm blessed enough, I guess, that I haven't lost very many people that I'm super close to. So I haven't been through this process. Was it therapeutic? Did it help? Did being, did physical distance, how did that transform your relationship to this absence?
0: Nothing helps. Um, the adage of time is true. Um, when we talk about death and dying, we're using all travel metaphors, right? Where, you know, he passed, the, the great beyond, this journey, um, his transition, her transition. All of this is travel metaphor. Um, grief is a journey. Um, and so I thought, well, I guess I need to travel now that now that I'm dealing with this grief. And I was... Probably the best thing about it was that my disorientations were aligned. You know, when you're traveling, you don't quite know, like, what country am I in? What's the money? What's the language? Where am I going next? That disorientation is very much like grief in my mind. Um, The sort of standing in the store and looking at four kinds of, five kinds, six kinds of cheese and not knowing which one you want. Um, The... Um, not understanding what's going on around you. So maybe, m- maybe the displacement of travel, um, the language or metaphors of travel are very much like grief. Um, but no, I don't think there's any catharsis. <laughs> it's not like you go work it out somewhere, um, which was incredibly naive of me. Not that I shouldn't have gone for a trip, but I mean, we don't travel for therapy. We don't travel to. Um, we don't travel to come to a greater sense of ourselves. Um, I think, um, which right now I justified everything that travel writers talk about. Right? <laughs> can you edit that? The, the idea of
1: I don't know if I can. <laughs> Maybe this was an epiphany that people need to hear. Well, That's I mean, funny. I think there's a lot of. Um, you know therapy can be a metaphor that is tied to travel and the idea that you can find new versions of yourself and get away from all of the habits that tie you down at home and that is positive but i think this is an extraordinary situation where and so i'm wondering if it was helpful or if it was not helpful or if it was just neutral in a way that i mean how would it, do you think it would have been different if you'd stayed home during this period
0: oh i couldn't have i was i was hideous there was no way anyone would want to be around me i quit my job i lost my marriage i um, gave up my apartment, it was just like, burn it all down. Um, but, I don't, but I don't think that I went out to travel and it taught me who I was. What happened was I went out to travel and it gave me the time, it gave me a lot of time in my head, um, but, but also it taught me about essentials, like, oh, what are, what things matter. So if that's a, you know, if that's a therapy. If that's um, a kind of catharsis, sure. But really it was just shaking off all that extra shit that um, things that I thought I wanted, thing ambitions that I had stacked up over the years and failed to reassess on a regular basis, physical possessions. Um, um, You know those times in life when you get to a place and you're like, this is what I always wanted, I got it. And then you realize, well, it's not exactly what I want. I hadn't done any of that work, and that's what travel does for us. It um, it essentializes everything, resets the priorities, um, makes us realize that well, this is what carries me around, but it's not really me, and it will betray me someday, and I will betray it all the time. And this talking
1: about your body, my body. Your yeah, sorry, self. I'm making that gesture
0: yeah. of like pointing here, um, and so that's that's travel teaches that you gotta get over the border and you don't have what you need and you also have to take a shit <laughs> and you, that's that's the world that's being human uh death teaches you that as well
1: Hmm. and so so in a way there's it's travel was inseparable from your specific life experience that you had to essentialize certain things you had to get away from Everything that surrounded you, and and um, yeah, yet at the same time, it didn't. You didn't escape the grief. The grief was still there.
0: Yeah, no, you just carry it with you. It's yeah. it's like anything else. I don't think there's any way out of grief. You just have to work on it. You have to. You have to give it time. I don't. I mean, therapists and, and others will say that you know holidays work and all that stuff. I don't know. I'm a pessimist about um, quick fixes. I think it's all just time and work
1: so I think that is one thing about travel is that travel can bring you into a new version of yourself but that doesn't mean it's a a quick fix you know your one-week vacation isn't going to re-essentialize yourself Um, and you actually have to go through some difficult processes before you even start to think about um,
0: right but then it's I, I mean more what we're talking about is how one views oneself in relationship to the world how do you take this increment I'm gesturing towards your body. <laughs> How do you take this increment and and hurl it around the earth? And what does any of that mean? Your body here, your body in Swakopmund. You know, your body in Vladivostok. Um, what does any of that mean? And that's, I mean, we're talking about place then as much as we're talking about you and your relationship to your body.
1: Yeah, that, that's... Um... An interesting thought and then I think a lot of death metaphors are used to and I use them a lot again the memento mori thing the Mm -hmm. idea that if you if you know you're going to die then you embrace yourself you know while you're able-bodied and while you're in full health and you try to live to the fullest extent but yet despite all of these you know I've been scribbling down Ecclesiastes you know when I was young you know Mm -hmm. all of of the existential things Mm -hmm. in Ecclesiastes Edward Abbey which I read before
0: and yet, then the next thing you know, you get hit by a bus on Broadway.
1: Well, maybe, maybe, that, <laughs> maybe that's easier than the six months of agony. But I mean, I think that's the kind of death that you, when you're using death to motivate something extraordinary, like a, a year of travel or something that you might not have done otherwise, that's the sort of death you envision. Um, but yet within these same death metaphors, is this very difficult way that people die at the end of life. You know, not everybody gets hit by a bus. Right? Oh,
0: yeah. I think there's an entire movement now. We know that we need to address the way people die. As a, as a country, as a culture, we know this. Our health care is in shambles. 30 million people have no coverage. Um, uh, I'm talking to a friend, a, a new friend who, you know, th- they're bankrupt families, completely destroyed because of health care. Um, because of a health episode that's that's done them in. Um, so we know that we need to do something about it. It's in our personal lives. But we're using all these masks to pretend that we're talking about it. So the current fascination with like eco-burial and morticians and all of that, I love these people. I think they're fascinating. We have to do something about the environment if it's a composting casket, God bless. I would rather we go after Exxon, but you know, I'll take what we can get. Um, but that's a mask in many ways of discussing the, so- the social justice, the the body in pain. And what as human beings, what as Americans is our responsibility to those who are in pain? That's That's my point, I come back to that again and again. Pain is wrong, what can we do to prevent it? And that's not the conversation we're having.
1: And I want to get eventually to that at the policy level, you know, because there, I think there are specific reasons you you alluded to them in your book about why we aren't having this conversation, why yeah. we are spending too much money, why we are still mythologizing our end days in a way that's not healthy. Right. Um, but I do want to, in a concrete way, bring you like when you were when did you realize that hospice uh, volunteer work might be a part of your grief process? Was it while you were traveling or?
0: Um, it was, No, I, I got back um, and I was, you know, you go away, you try to forget about what life at home is, you come back and oh shit, it's all still there. <laughs> um, and i like, okay, I wanna see more death. I miss him, I wanna be close to him. I want to see more death. That's what it was. Um, so as much as it was figuring it out, it was doing a survey of like, are all deaths like his? Um, uh, can I learn by watching other people's death and dying? But it was also wanting this proximity uh, to missing him. Um, so so yeah, I went through training and I volunteered for a long time in a hu- an in-hospital hospice facility. And then I started getting home patients, which was pure joy and crazy and, There's a lot of that in the book. My home hospice patients, I think because I went to them committing to just love them regardless. So I've done crazy shit as last ditch requests for people who were on their sofa dying.
1: Give us some examples.
0: I bought lottery tickets. I had a friend who had never tasted a Twinkie. um, And when Twinkies went out of business briefly, I scoured the world for a box of Twinkies for them. Um, I have um, you know rearranged someone's table right next to their bed, deathbed. I have held someone's head while they puked. I have, you know, wiped up all sorts of nasty stuff. Um, and that has its own proximity to it, right? It's kind of this commitment to strangers and being intimate with them and their bodies, um, you learn a lot about dignity and compassion, um, but also just being a mensch when you do that kind of work. You're just like, oh yeah, that's, that, I really do need to wipe up this vomit because that's just the right, it's the human thing to do. Um, so that sort of um, uh, breaking down any pretense of, um, of what it means to be a human being in relation to others, it just, it can't exist when you're doing hospice work. Um, it's
1: also a centralizing in a certain way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That if there's poop, it needs to be attended to, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or puke or, or the Twinkie run or...
0: Anything. And it can be the most mundane thing. Like um, I had a, a, a hospice patient, you know, patients are in a lot of pain and so it can make them angry or weepy or a whole host of... Every emotion is in there. Um, and I had this pretty angry patient who just didn't like... Things done in the wrong way, and one never knew what they were, and they changed all the time. And so this angry man, like thrashing because he just didn't want that blanket; he wanted the other blanket. Um, I oh, I have done that before. <laughs> I have thrashed around because I wanted, on a whim, something. Um, there's a lot of mirroring taking place as well when you're watching someone die.
1: Well, I think about. I mean, I was sick in a minor way about four days ago. Oh, and, sorry. And the level of self-pity I leveled at myself, I mean, there's <laughs> yes. there's something I worry about myself. And maybe everybody, like I I haven't thought a lot about my own death, you know, it's I'm not of death age yet, but I just wonder how would I, like if, if I was such a grumpy, you know, horrible, pessimistic person four days ago because I was, had a sore throat and congestion, you know.
0: You just need the I, right doctor with the right meds. You'll be fine.
1: <laughs> I wonder, I wonder how, how my deathbed experience, and then also just like the idea of what am I going to request? What, what's my Twinkie? What's my, um, yeah. you know, ukulele string or, or whatever the examples you mentioned in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you learn? How did you come out of this experience um understanding this process differently you had a very personal experience with your father and then you diversified you Mm -hmm. went through the mensch process Mm -hmm. old yiddish word meaning (laughs) trying to be a good person is that what Mm -hmm. mensch is? yeah and so how did that expand your understanding of this little talked about part of life
0: oh that it's unavoidable that it's almost always ugly um we can pull out beautiful moments but you're dying. You're parting with your body, and God knows where the rest of you is going. Um, that's a question that we'll never answer. So that's the other thing, right? The thwarting of knowing things. I think I learned that I don't know a lot. Um, that's not a bad lesson in midlife.
1: Were there any imperatives or urgent things that you felt after this process? And we're sort of moving into policy now. You know. Like-
0: oh. Yeah, we,
1: well, I mean, you can talk You can talk we, about we. existential things, too, <clears throat> if, 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 if you have your Twinkie moment things. But I'm also, you know, it almost feels like you were convicted against, again, to use that, that sort of religious word, you feel convicted to do something. But yeah. it feels, you wouldn't have written a book about this if you hadn't have discovered some things that are tied to this lack of conversation about this right. terminal part of life.
0: Well, just as I said, we use all sorts of tricks to not face death and dying. We also use all sorts of tricks to not talk about improving death and dying. And one of them is policy is boring. As soon as, you know, we launch into statistics and numbers, most people glaze over, particularly our politicians. And so one of the objectives of the book was to tackle all of these issues with a character that meant something to me, that I had spent enough time with to fall in love with and, and to have a proximity to, and to let them demonstrate a particular point. Um, but yes, our policy is very bad. Um, there are cheaper ways to do what we are doing now, and it is pure greed and lack of compassion that is preventing us from pursuing them
1: okay explain
0: oh my god um
1: (laughs) because again this is a super expensive 50 mm percent of of these health expenses are on five percent like you said it's it's good to keep people comfortable and happy and usher them into death properly but it feels like that's not happening
0: yeah so one of the greatest problems that i've focused on i guess during and since the book came out so about the past three years is that window of time before patients qualify for hospice we're pretty good. I think it's something like 1.2 million people die in hospice each year out of 2.1 million deaths. Don't quote me, listeners. Go check it out. Google that shit. Um, but when you look at um, kind of care that precedes that, patients who are generally healthy, who carry on in you know, their normal way and they're still working, um, or let's say they just retire um, and, and have one health experience, some sort of incident, a broken hip, a broken leg, and they need more help in the home, we, don't, we haven't addressed that at all. So we've got covered through Medicare and Medicaid and hospice programs, which paid for through Medicare and Medicaid, um, but we don't have anything that precedes that period of time before one needs 24-hour care. Um, just disability, I guess. Disability is hard as hell to get to, and it's also poorly structured and never adequate. Um, and then we've got these crazy Cadillac concierge services um, that are ridiculously overpriced, but who cares because the people who can access them can pay for it.
1: I mean The Cadillac services for things like a broken arm or leg yeah. for this yeah. period of life, yeah, <clears throat> which is interesting because my mom just got a new knee and my dad just got a pacemaker. So good for them. They're
0: Oh, Um, let's talk about pacemakers at some point. Do you know... I
1: know next to nothing about them.
0: Oh, do you know um, um, Butler, Katie Butler, she wrote a beautiful book, one of the most beautiful books, with um, a terrible title called Knocking on Heaven's Door. And like Otto Gawande's book, Being Mortal, it started out as a New York Magazine article. So his was Letting Go. Hers was... What Broke My Father's Heart.
1: Oh, I think I've heard of this.
0: Oh, you got to go find it. It's really, she's a beautiful writer. I
1: think I read the article mm-hmm. version.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece. But she's talking about how her family, her father and mother and her as a primary caretaker, just got sucked into one more thing, one more treatment, one more. And okay, maybe now you should tell me your parents' situation. How old are they?
1: 78 and 74.
0: Okay, there. go on.
1: And I think their, <clears throat> my father's father died when he was 51 or something, but their parents were about 86. That's about the average age of mm-hmm. their death of, of their parents. Fairly active.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but then you know my father had this dizziness, and it, they just realized he needed a pacemaker, and then you know, my mom had, had problems with her knees. But like all their friends are getting new knees. It's almost like it's just the thing to do. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's really easy now.
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they're they're of an age. I, I, this is actually something I, I started thinking about maybe five five or six years ago. Um, I, I, again, as as like my um, grandparents died and then my father's older sister died. Just thinking about the the idea that, that that there's these people who are living the last days of their lives in ways that they would mortify them um, as a younger person. You know these these proud people who are mm-hmm. who are intubated and and, and living. Sort of low dignity mm-hmm. um, lives at the end of their life, and mm-hmm. so as my parents get older, I want to make sure that that that, that this transition or whatever travel metaphor you want to use <laughs> uh, ensures that they don't live torturous, pained, um, lonely, boring um, late life. Like I want to have this conversation that we never have, it seems, in America that we avoid in America. Mm-hmm. So,
0: can I come visit? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um,
1: You can start the conversation.
0: Strangers are easier sometimes than family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do a lot of that now. It's like a little side project that I never knew would come out of the book. But as a stranger, if I can walk in and say, do you have a will? Do you have an advanced director? Who's your lawyer? What's going to happen? What objects in here do you want to go somewhere? That sort of stuff is much easier for strangers to initiate sometimes. Um, But but it's... uh, Families fail to do this so um, so often. You know this. That's why you want to pursue it. Um, How many siblings do you have?
1: One older sister.
0: And where does she live?
1: A mile and a half away from me. And we and I live. Oh, so you
0: you meaning we're sitting in New York. You but you meaning Kansas. Kansas. Okay. And your parents live
1: right next door to me. Perfect. And I'm gone a lot um, as a travel writer, but. You as don't. a family union, we, we live fairly closely. Mm-hmm. We've actually already talked a bit. Uh, I've, I've interviewed, just, just sort of as an archive nerd, I've interviewed my parents about their lives a bit. You know, we've talked about possessions, we've talked about will type stuff. Good. Uh, and so that kind of stuff, I feel like I'm ahead of the curve on a little bit, mm-hmm. yet, um, yeah, I just wanna make sure that, that when they're ver- the, the very end of their lives happen, it isn't in mm-hmm. a way that's miserable.
0: Well, bad things are always gonna happen. But, I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do to get their plans in place. Probably the most important right now would be their medical decisions. Um, It will always change. You should always update them on a regular basis. Thanksgiving is a great time. Um, You can use the experience of a neighbor's death or a friend's death to say, Oh, whoa, Joe went out after three weeks in the hospital. That's not what you want, Dad, is it? Or what do you want, dead? Um, and then you can, at some point, once it's rolling, get into specifics. Um, the big issues are intubation, uh, respirators, and defibrillators. Um,
1: intubation meaning tubes being stuck into your
0: um, yeah air yeah
1: esophagus type yeah.
0: yeah. So respirators and defibrillators. Um, here I'll give you the I'll give you the book download. Up until about the 60s or 70s, the definition of death um, for almost the whole history of humankind was the ending of brain function, heart function, and lung function. So you're breathing, your heart beating, your thinking, your brain. Um, But as soon as we had respirators that can keep the lungs uh, inflating indefinitely, and defibrillators that could electrify the heart and and give it a, a beat, we were stuck with the brain. And the problem with the brain is that it is an enormous mystery to us. We have no idea where all of our functions reside. And as a culture, we haven't decided how much of the brain is necessary to make us alive. So in the 80s, a whole group of doctors got together at Harvard and said, we need organs. If we decide on a definition of death, we can get organs that are still going to go on and save lives. Um, and I mean, this is how things are, you know, if you want to be existentialist about it, you can talk about truth and, and how it's, you know, constructed. But these doctors said okay, if a heart doesn't beat after, I think it's like one minute and something, after it first stops, And it doesn't beat for that period of time, that's dead. Um, And the definition of death became no activity in the brain whatsoever. It's called brain death. But there were three cases that took place where um, medicine general practice as well as laws surrounding what patients can and can't do were formed in our current 50, 60 years. Um, and it's wonderful, right? These, these cases were all taking place in the same period where we are discussing when life begins with um, abortion and reproductive justice. Um, so the first case is Karen Ann Quinlan, um, the second is Karen Ann Quinlan, um, a young white woman who was drinking and I believe taking quaaludes and was unconscious for an undocumented period of time and was then in a persistent vegetative state. Nancy Cruzhan, car accident, ends up face down in a puddle. Um, uh, also, in a persistent vegetative state, and then, of course, the one that we all know most is Terry Schiavo. Um, uh, Terry Schiavo collapsed in her kitchen. Her husband Michael called the ambulance. She was resuscitated. These young bodies, you know, you can get in there and make the heart beat and the and the lungs function. Um, but any time the brain goes without oxygen for about four minutes, anything over that, you're you're losing stuff. Um, and so, how much stuff did she lose? Well, Terry Shivo opened her eyes and closed them. She had a sleep cycle. She could yawn. Um, she had, you know, basic motions enough for us to look at the videos and say, "Oh my God, she is tracking her mom." But what does it mean to you to be alive? And that is a unique question. If you say to your dad, "Dad, you don't have the use of your legs." You can do nothing but lie in bed and eat chocolate ice cream and watch the ball game. Is that okay? Are you all right with that? Or is quality of life for you? You need to walk around this block twice a day like you've done for the past 30 years. So when you start asking those very specific questions, what really means, what what has the most value to you? How do you like to spend your time? What do you absolutely hate? fluorescent lights um, and strangers smothering around you on a plastic covered bed in a facility, that I get is not everyone's dream. But they might be okay with it. That's That's what you need to ask. How much of brain function, how much of bodily function does your loved one need to feel okay about living, about continuing on? All, there are very few people that say, bring on the pain. It's part of dying, I'll take it. Um, but pain really, really matters. And we're like dinosaurs when it comes to alleviating pain. It's only been a specialty, according to the AMA, for over a decade, just over a decade.
1: And you talk about the sacralization of pain. Oh, uh, particularly in religious circles. And yeah. that's something I, yeah. that I want to get to. But it almost, it almost feels like our technology of being able to keep certain body functions alive has outpaced our philosophical and ethical approach to what being alive is and, and how to navigate this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, if I talk to dad and he has a very concise Answer if he's cool with the chocolate ice cream and baseball, which I'm sure my dad would be completely fine with, Mm -hmm. but not fine with um, intubation that might help him live for four more months, you know, while he's just sort of being fed chemicals and stuff. Right. What power does he and I have to manage the manner of his death?
0: Um, as it stands now, legally, um, patients are permitted, and this comes out of the Nancy Cruzan case, patients are permitted, well, it's actually, it actually predates that, but it was reconfirmed in the Nancy Cruzan case. Patients are permitted to deny or remove any medical treatment. The, the place where that gets sticky and that the courts almost always uphold um, are feeding tubes. So the catholic church which manages one fifth maybe one sixth of all hospital beds in the country i mean obviously the catholic church has huge influence on the structure of our healthcare um, policies and provisions which is why we're seeing supreme court cases about religious exemptions for accessing contraception something that 20 years ago we thought was completely completely done deal um, so they have a huge influence over our healthcare policy. And when the Catholic Church said, the Catholic Church, these hospitals are governed by 72 ethical and religious directives. So they determine all sorts of care. Um, But when they saw Karen Ann Quinlan case, and then the Nancy Cruzan case, and then the Terry Schiavo case, they were like, okay, we've got a pattern here. And they went into the ethical and religious directives and decided that it is up to the hospital director as to whether a feeding tube can be removed or not.
1: Not up to the individual. Not up to the individual
0: or their family or their proxy. That won't stand in court in most cases. I mean, God knows now the way the courts are going um, under this new Trump era. But for the most part, that won't stand in court. Patients' rights exist. So with that one feeding tube caveat in a Catholic hospital really specific, Um, Patients and their medical proxies, family members, next of kin, can always remove or deny medical treatment, even if it means the death of the patient.
1: So legally, it is a decision that can be made. Absolutely. Why isn't it being made?
0: People don't know. They don't know that they can make that decision, and because it's framed as though they are deciding to kill their loved one. Doctors doctors can go all the way to residencies without seeing a dying person. They're never taught how to dis- discuss these things with anyone. And it's really difficult to discuss death and dying with someone. Um, and so we have a system that's predicated on curing anything um, and that forgot that we're dying people. We're ephemeral um, and that never kind of teched up on how to get us through that.
1: Well, we have a narrative ethos that underpins the idea that we can overcome anything, you right. know, that we that we win and win, we struggle and win and struggle and win, and we die in each other's arms as we fade off to sleep.
0: And then the dramatic, <laughs> yeah, the, the dramatic music and, you know, the hero comes crawling up over the cliff. <laughs> like, yeah. There he is. Um, so it's almost as if yeah. it
1: doesn't fit into the stories we tell ourselves again and again and again. And so... Yeah. In a way, it's not a legal problem, it's almost a narrative problem. It's about having a conversation that we're not prepared to have.
0: But that's in tandem, really clearly. I mean, when I say the medical industry, I'm talking about medical education, I'm talking about insurance, I'm talking about um, um, uh, uh, medical device manufacturing, pharmaceutical, all of this is, it's a business. We tell ourselves it's non-profit. This is a huge business. And people are making money on Botox, but also, um, I don't know, last-minute knee replacements on the 89-year-old grandma who really only stays in her living room anyway.
1: So is there, speaking of, of, uh, of meta-narratives, is there a Hollywood-esque narrative of evil men twirling their mustaches and counting Uh-oh. their, their end-of-life money? Are are right. there, are, the, are the, these melodramatic... Uh, like, is it the is it part of um, is there some corporate villainy going on? Is that that um, money is being made and it, that makes it harder for hospital administrators to 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 be more pragmatic about this sort of thing and more more um, compassionate about these decisions that involve that can involve a lot of pain and suffering at the end of life?
0: Yes, but it's enormous and systemic, right? So let's pretend that you and I are talking about capitalism and the way it influences public education. We're talking about a system that um, uh, has thrown off regulation. Let's talk about um, fossil fuel industry, right? Um, That's just so much more easy. It's blatant. Um, So when we're talking about an enormous system that is raping and pillaging all across the country, meanwhile, you and I are in a place with a gas stove, and I drive a pickup truck that gets 16 miles to the gallon. how much flying do you do? Fair so, amount. Fair amount. So we live in a world where personal choice, we are told, directs corporations ethically and morally. Personal choice doesn't do that. We are attached, we are, we are beings in a system that requires much greater solutions than how you're going to cook your eggs in the morning or how you're going to get from here to Kansas. Um, so personal choice indeed makes us feel really great, um, but it is not going to fix our fossil fuel ecological um, horrors.
1: Well, there's shareholder value, too. I mean, there's, once course. you depersonalize it, you know.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. There are a lot of people that are getting really fucking rich. Healthcare is no different. Um, so we're talking about systemic problems that are ingrained and manifest over long periods of time and if we want to tackle any of it it has to be not from the top down um, only but also from the bottom up and in the book i look at hospice for instance fabulous program really wonderful that um, in the 70s a woman named cicely saunders said people are having really bad deaths, let's do something about it, and went to nursing school. Um, And then started, I think it was called St. Thomas, or started a hospice, St. Christopher's. Um, And the idea, traveled to the United States through Canada, um, the first hospice founded here in 74, 72, 74, and really smart, based in the home. 80% of people want to die at home. Right now, 80% of people die in facilities. So hospice is a way to address that problem. You must have six months or less to live, so a terminal diagnosis. You must um, uh, not continue curative treatment, although there are pilot programs to test that because some treatments are curative but also palliative. Um, And it was a deterrent to many patients. If you had six months or less to live, but you still hadn't come to grips with it, we still want to get you into hospice so you can stay at home, because hospice is really the only way that we've got to care for people in their home.
1: And it's something, it sounds like, that has in a tangible way improved this late life quality of life.
0: Yes, very much so. So
1: it is a very, it is one, has been a solution.
0: Very much so, but there are huge problems. White people use it, right? So it's not reaching people of color. And that's a whole other, you know, socio-cultural, Is socio-economic issue.
1: Across economic lines, white people only use it? Like, it's, it's not a middle-class
0: people thing? Um, I'd have to double-check that. Certainly with Aid in Dying, it's a white woman, cancer patient, well-educated, right? I mean, that's a really specific demographic that's probably changing as more states legalize. We're up to seven now, um, but, um, but hospice use, again, six months or less to live the the median use of hospice the median stay is 14 days
1: so people aren't using
0: people aren't using so hospitals are not saying you know joe's dying he needs to go home call this number or we'll call this number and send them to your house we'll get you the hospital we'll get you the oxygen we'll get you what you need so doctors not taught how to do that Um, it's really reliant on patience in many cases, unless you're in some hip city. I'm on my way to Springfield, Missouri this weekend, and I am so excited because there's a university out there where all these young communication kids said, we're going to talk about advanced directives, and we're going to do this program. Like, you know, we should all have these. Um, And you know how um, in Being Mortal, Gawande talks about... um, La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's a town that started asking any patient who came into the hospital um, what their end of life wishes were. Anybody, everybody. And all of a sudden, care costs started going down and patients started having better deaths. And so Springfield is instituting this, this weekend. So the library's rolling it out, the university's joining in, it's a really great program. That's one small systemic intervention
1: is it the state university or Drury or Drury? Okay. Oh, you know oh. them. Yeah. Well, you should come. I'm I'm from Kansas, so I know. Uh, often through sports some of these smaller schools. That's good for uh, Drury though.
0: They're they're amazing kids. They're calling it bucket list plus one. Okay. But I also And can't, what does that
1: mean? What, bucket what, list plus one?
0: It's like all the things that you want to do before you die and fill out your advance directive.
1: Advance directive being your oh. wishes your end of life
0: Um, Medical wishes? Your medical wishes. Okay.
1: What what an interesting thing for college students to initiate. I know. I can't
0: wait to go tell them, oh, and by the way, there's a great chance that no one will care whether you fill this out or not. If you are hit by a bus on the street, which is my favorite scenario, hit by a bus on the street, um, and you don't have your advance directive with you, they're going to resuscitate you. Maybe someone down the way is going to find it tucked away in your filing cabinet and say, oh no, we need to pull that we need to pull that plug. But I mean, we also need to know that this is not a, a, a silver bullet.
1: To so don't. DNR tattoos for everybody.
0: DNR <laughs> tattoos for everyone. But then the problem is it changes, right? There's no reason why a 40 year old should have a DNR tattoo.
1: Hmm. Yeah, or that a 40 uh, year old even thinks about it that much.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that said, but then these three white women who were made the great cases of um, of healthcare in the country were all under the age of thirty, I think. Right. Or at least under the age of forty.
1: Well, are there things that are to be can be learned from other countries or other cultures and how they deal with late life quality of
0: life? Sure. I I, I didn't tour the world to ask that question. I'm not from those places. I think there are probably interventions that are helpful, um, and I think um, Caitlin Dowdy just did a book about death ritual. So it's after death, but might still provide insight. She's a hoot. She's super funny, and um, and that might be a worthwhile book to pick up. Um, what about
1: on the policy level? Are there countries that
0: oh yeah. Sharper? Pol- policy level a thousand yes. times over, there are countries that are doing it so much better than we are, um, but we're the best. We're the best healthcare system in the world, and so we can't see beyond our own you know, thick head to, to actually look at some of it.
1: What are some countries that are doing some of it?
0: Any of the Scandinavian countries, even Europe in general. My my last husband was German. I mean, the healthcare system there is just super smart. I have a friend who's Canadian. You know, she she's here working, and she goes home for her healthcare. Um,
1: and this includes late life care.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. These are conversations that are taking place all the time in other countries. It's just a pragmatism, um, uh, not so infused with sort of fight and cure and go out winning and death be not proud. Um, Of course that exists in other places, but not in the same way that it does here.
1: And there's almost a science fiction-ness sometimes to the idea that so many Americans are like hooked up in rooms around America, that there's this whole legion of people who would otherwise be dead, but are hooked up to machines for the last few months of their lives.
0: So I have a bioethicist who I'm adore. He is my buddy. I love him, but he's also a lawyer and a psychiatrist and he beats me to every fucking story. I love this person. His name is Jacob Apple. He's also a novelist. He's like three people. Um, and he told me one time, I was um, I was re- doing research for the book, I guess. And um, and I was asking about intubation. like. How many, how many PVS patients are we talking about who are out there living on just respirators or feeding tubes? And he was like, there's a whole facility in New Jersey full of them. And I was like, (gasps) mortified. And no one knows. I don't think that we have, no one's ever sat down and said, I'm writing this down right now, Rolf. write a story about how many PVS patients there are in the country. Do the math. Do the heartbreak. Wow.
1: And PVS stands for?
0: Persistent vegetative state. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, all three women, Karen Ann, Quinlan, Nancy Cruz, and Terry PVS. The three fates. Um, yes, most likely, PVS. And that means that a significant portion of your brain, the higher functions, um, all but the brain stem is gone. And that brain stem is what controls sleep-wake cycles, other things. Um, it's the last thing to go, thankfully um but if that's the only thing left life can be kind of grim
1: so there's this black mirror episode type scenario in new jersey which sounds horrifying
0: (laughs) right but now i want to go find it you want to go
1: yeah let's let's do a field trip and figure this out i'm a little nervous
0: you'll be fine by
1: by the prospect of that yeah um but even if it didn't exist as an actual um, black mirror episode facility collectively there's probably a lot of this Happening, you know that that we have technologized uh, our way into a really creepy situation. Right.
0: Um, I have always wanted to spend more time thinking about, say, Foucault, right? Um, and I just know pigeon theory. I don't know theory theory. Um, but the Foucault, the
1: mid twentieth century French philosopher.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, but his idea of biopolitics and. Um, uh, how we are, how we have extracted labor from human bodies, right? Um, And we don't require those bodies to be conscious. If you think about bodies hooked up somewhere, somebody's paying for it. Who's making money off that? Um, Off
1: this hypothetical New Jersey facility.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, yes, there are lots of grim places that we could go with who's making money off bodies hooked up to machines. It's like the matrix reverse in some version. But, yeah, there's some, there are some ugly byproducts of an inefficient, uncompassionate, uncompassionate?
1: Let's go with it.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, 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 approach to human pain.
1: What can we leave people with in terms of practical... Um, uh measures to sort of ensuring that they and their loved ones are um can live a a good ethical um, relatively pain-free end-of-life experience right
0: um family is so complicated start with your neighbors if there's an old couple that lives nearby whether they're in the apartment downstairs or the farmhouse down the lane um spend some time with them Um, One of the sadnesses to me is the invisibility of elders and I'm really fond of old people. You hang out with them, you learn a lot Um, and also they're just gentler beings that have kind of worn off the edges over 70 years. Um, So hang out with older people around you and that will teach you how to talk to your parents. You can see what the needs are on the most basic level, whether it's carrying in groceries or um, helping someone dial the phone to talk to their family members. Um, I was happy to hear that you and your sister are um, living close to your parents. Um, Make sure that all the financial stuff, any of the concerns about fairness, um, the, the preferential treatment of one sibling over the other, work that shit out now. Um, because when it is compounded with care and money and pain, it can get really overblown and difficult. Um, And then just for your family members, take care of your own stuff now. Just know what you want with the understanding that it will change. Um, Hang out with dying people. If it were up to me, every doctor, number one, every doctor in the country would have to volunteer for hospice. They don't know how that takes place. They don't know anything about it. It should be a semester while they're in medical school. And number two, the rest of us, like if it were up to me, every college kid would have to volunteer for one semester in hospice. If you don't know what death and dying looks like, which for all of human history, we did up until hospitalization of death and dying. If you don't know what it looks like, how are you ever going to plan for it?
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Anne Newman's book, The Good Death, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.